So 1 Timothy, we're moving into a time of looking at 1 Timothy and we'll be there for a few weeks. Uh, it's going to be good. Before we make a start, let's ask the Lord to bless us. Lord, we thank you for your word, the primacy of that, the centrality of that as a guide for our life. We don't want to underestimate. We want to magnify you for what you've provided for us, which just gives us direction, which gives us security, which gives us something to hang on to. And so open our eyes to see what there is in the book of Timothy. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We all know about the book of Acts, don't we? But we don't normally think of it as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We think of it as the Acts of the Apostles. That's what it's usually called. Well, when I was at theological college, one of my lecturers there liked to refer to it as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I like that thought because it just says that this physician, historian Luke, documented the birth of the church through the leading and empowering of the Holy Spirit. Sure, he used the apostles, but he was the one behind, wasn't he? Directing and guiding and showing the way and empowering people. And when the Holy Spirit came upon the church on the day of Pentecost, that was the start, really the birth of the, the church. So that happened, and people all around in Jerusalem thought, this is really good. And then came persecution. And what happened with the persecution? Like rats off a ship, <laughs> sinking ship, in a sense. Bad example, but nevertheless. The gospel went out because people wanted to get away from being persecuted in Jerusalem and some of them went to Ephesus and they were discovered there by the Apostle Paul. So let's have a look at that. Acts chapter 19 verse 1, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus and there he found some disciples. So there, we've got that map there. That is Ephesus. Uh, you go, oh, I don't know any of those names. If you are good with geography and you like to look at Turkey, well, that's what it was in back in the day. So 1 Timothy is written to Timothy, who's a young protege of Paul's, and he has sent been sent by Paul to look after the believers at that place we just saw at Ephesus. And so I believe that the more we understand of the acts of the Holy Spirit in Ephesus, of the history of the church at Ephesus, the better we're going to understand 1 Timothy. When we move to a new town, you know, we like to know something of the history of the new church we're going to go to, and it gives us some clues. If we know the history, we know what sort of people are there, we know what things they've been through, we know what their values and their visions are. And so as we think about that for Ephesus, it's useful to remind ourselves of who these guys, Paul and Timothy, are as individuals and as a team. So Paul, the apostle to the non-Jewish world, the Gentiles. He has a dramatic spiritual encounter which turns this guy who's just completely antagonistic to the gospel. He's pharisaical in the worst sense of the word. He's a Jewish persecutor of followers of Jesus' way. What happens? He meets Jesus personally and is completely turned around. 
He realizes how wrong he's been. He repents. And then there's a period of time where he meditates and he grows in his new faith. And then the Holy Spirit releases him to begin his work of evangelizing. So let's just remind ourselves of where that happened from Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 if you want to follow through. And we have Saul breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Not very Christian here at the moment. And he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found there any who belonged to the way, any Christians, whether men or women, that he could take them prisoners and take them back to Jerusalem. And as he nears Damascus on his journey, suddenly there's a light from heaven flashes around him and he falls to the ground and hears a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. So we'll jump down a bit in the story there. He's, gets, he's blinded and the Lord asks a fellow called Ananias to go and pray for him. So in verse 15, we see, what we're, we see his commission. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, because this man, that's Paul, this man is my chosen instrument, and here's his job description, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. If you've ever read through the things that Paul suffered, there's a pretty big list. And so this Paul, chosen for this special task, and his name was Saul before his conversion. And there's this guy who's writing in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We start off verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. And this short introduction of the letter tells us who's writing it, but then also in verse 2, who's it been written to? To Timothy, my true son in the faith. So we've got Timothy now. And in the New Testament, Timothy is painted as perhaps Paul's most trusted assistant. They met on Paul's second missionary journey around the Mediterranean when Paul was revisiting most of the places he went around first time, and his grandmother and his mother, Lois and Eunice, were amongst Paul's first converts in a little Jewish community called Lystra. And they passed on their faith to Timothy. In 2 Timothy, that we find that in 1 verse 5 of 2 Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. So it seems most likely that Lois and Eunice have passed on their faith to Timothy. And so when Paul calls him his true son in the faith, I don't think he's saying that he actually led him to Christ, but it's more likely he's talking about how the two of them are just like-minded. It's the sort of thing that happens, you get two experts in the field, they recognise that they're thinking similarly in their field. It's like when a mentor realises that his student just gets it and they're on the same page. And so Paul saw something in Timothy because they were like-minded and he took him along, took him along for his in-house or on-the-job training and mentoring. That's Acts 16 verse 3. 
Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. See, he wanted to take him along on his missionary journey. So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area for they all knew that his father was Greek. And they met when Paul came to Lystra in Acts 16.1. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived whose mother was Jewish and a believer but his father was Greek. And some of you will have noticed the bit I glossed over in there, the painful cost which Timothy paid in order to go on the mission with Paul. Circumcision is certainly demonstrating commitment to the mission and the ministry, wasn't he? But that process opened doors, or at least removed barriers to the Jews receiving his ministry. And in case you think that's a sort of an ancient oddity, I had a friend in, when I was in Kalgoorlie who was an African missionary called by God to come and minister to the Wongais out in the goldfields. And he related a time of being with them and uh, in this circumstance with the other men, uh, he was able to demonstrate his African ritual circumcision to them and it just opened the door of acceptance to ministry to Wongais in the modern era. So Paul inducts Timothy from their first meeting into the ministry and he's going to eventually ask him to do these things that he's learning, to do them in Ephesus. And so let's look at the nature of that ministry he's being asked to do. In Acts 16 we're going now, Acts 16 verses 4 and 5. So Paul wanted to take him along on the journey and he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area because they knew his father was a Greek. And then in verse 4, as they travelled from town to town, here's the ministry. They delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. So they're teaching stuff from Jerusalem, from the elders and the apostles. And what's the result of that ministry? Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew daily in their numbers. That's what uh, Paul is taking Timothy along to do, to do this, to strengthen people in their faith. He's apprenticed to pass on teaching, to strengthen people in the faith. So there's one more endorsement of Timothy from Paul, and that is before he was sent to Ephesus, he actually sent Timothy to Corinth. And it's important to note that he didn't just send him with a message. He sent him with a lifestyle. You know, well, I don't know if you know this, but modern education separates knowledge from how you live. But back in those days, when you went to get educated, you went to a rabbi to learn, and you lived the same way that he lived. And often, you would live in the same house as the rabbi. So think about this. Think about the University of Jesus. He didn't say, come on down to the lecture room just from 9 to 3, Monday to Friday. Rest of the time, you're on your own. No, it was, come and live with me. Do life together with me. And then you will see how to put together teaching and life, which is wisdom. And because Paul wants people to imitate him, and he can't come himself, he sends someone who lives the Christian life the way he lives it. Someone that they can imitate because he lives life and does it 
the way that Paul does. And we'll see that in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16 to 18. Therefore I urge you, says Paul, imitate me. But he's not coming, so next verse. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. With the subtext, yeah, imitate him. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. And then, so we're looking at the first couple of verses of 1 Timothy. Verse 2 finishes with a sort of a standard greeting, which would be like, you know, we, when we write letters, there's a form. They have standard things like, you know, dear John, blah, 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 yours sincerely, yours faithfully, kind regards, Bill. Well, grace and peace is the standard greeting Paul uses, and you can find that in Romans, you can find it in Corinthians, in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, but in this one, Paul's got grace and peace and mercy. Grace and peace and mercy as well. He'll refer later on to himself being the chief of sinners. And maybe he's connecting at this stage of his life more deeply with his innate sinfulness because he's getting older. And most people believe he wrote this letter to Timothy probably on his last missionary journey as he's on his way to Rome. And so it's like his awareness of his sinfulness is increasing over life which means that his gratitude for the amazing mercy of God which he's received has found a way to forgive his sinfulness. He's just more and more aware of the mercy he's received. And I don't know if you think about this, but it makes sense. The closer you come to God, the more you realise your frailty and your sinfulness. It's like the more light you have and the better you can see, the more dirt you see. And my mum had a cataract operation and so she could see a lot better and she said to Dad one day, gee, I didn't realise the walls were so dirty. And it's like that. The closer you get to God, the more you appreciate how merciful he is. The closer you get to him, the greater you realise he is and how small we are by comparison to him. And I think Paul burned with the desire to tell others how they too, you could have this same mercy. You can have this same grace and peace which I have obtained. Well, back to the acts of the Holy Spirit in Ephesus. Due to the persecution of the church, some believers had found their way to Ephesus. And Paul's on this journey. He's come over a land from Corinth. He's met them up and he's found out, oh, they haven't quite got the complete gospel yet. They haven't heard about the Holy Spirit yet. They've only been baptised with the John the Baptist baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. So they've repented, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit. So Paul tells them in Acts chapter 19, verse 4, he says, John's baptism, that was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. And what Paul does next really kick-starts the church in Ephesus. The next verse, Acts 19.5, and Paul placed hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they, they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. 
and there were about 12 men in all. Isn't that interesting? Here's another group of 12 disciples. Jesus' model is reinstigated here in Ephesus now. So I wonder if you can put on a leadership hat or leadership goggles at this point. And we had a, on Wednesday, we had a lovely, um, wonderful meeting for the Gideons. And uh, praise the Lord, uh, something like $7,000 was raised to spread Bibles uh, wherever they'll be spread. And, uh, but anyway, if you were the head of something, an organisation that had to, say, evangelise an area, how would you evaluate whether you were being successful at that? So we're going to hold that in the back of your mind, that leadership perspective on what Paul does in Ephesus. So he's in Ephesus and he starts with the Jews. In Acts 19, verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and he spoke boldly for three months, three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. So where did Paul start in Ephesus? At the most believing place he can find, the synagogue, because, you know, Jesus was, after all, a Jew, and his teachings were based on the Jewish scripture. And for three months, he's able to speak, he's able to teach freely. However, eventually the late adopters demonstrate they're never going to change. A friend of mine visited a beautiful little church in England. He was shown around by this uh, crusty old trustee and he mused to the trustee as he looked around, gee, over the years you must have seen many changes and you're right, says old Jeremiah the trustee, and I've resisted every one of them. Eventually, people make up their minds about something new and then they harden into their set position and then they harden into, well, now I can snipe at other positions. And that's what happened. In what we find in Acts 19.9, some became obstinate. They refused to believe and then they sniped. They publicly maligned the way. So what did Paul do? He left. And one of the commentators I've come across over the years said that he actually just went next door because that's where the Hall of Tyrannus was, next door. So Paul left them in Acts 19, 9, he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And so as we follow what happened from here, we're sort of taking note of Ephesus, the place, Ephesus, the city, we're taking note of where the converts came from and that makes us think about the potential baggage that they might have brought in from their culture. And we're keeping in mind that Timothy is going to have to bring teaching and pastoring to that group of people. And that's going to affect the instructions which Paul's going to give in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And the first thing to note in Ephesus is the spiritual power which God exhibits through Paul. And we're going to see that over two years, we're going to see how many people hear the gospel. And remember, this is back in the day where you couldn't put it on messenger, you couldn't put it on newspaper. All you had was the human grapevine. And so getting as many people as possible to hear the news 
It's going to take something extra. It's going to take spiritual power. So what was the effect with our leadership hat? We've seen Acts 19.10. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. They all heard. Wow, God enabled an amazing spread of his message. And partly that was because God attached miracles of healing and deliverance to Paul's ministry. Think, look at this. This is the church that this letter has been written to. 1911 of Acts. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul in Ephesus. So that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick. And their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. And there's an interesting section in the story of Acts 19 in regards to the occult. And the occult has a couple of major themes. One of them is self-love, which gives self the right to enjoy whatever sensual pleasures you desire or imagine. And the other is a quest for extra power and that, that brings in spells and sorcery and invitations to demons to come and be in. And one of the things I've read over the years is that evangelism to cultures who are absorbed with the occult becomes most effective when there's a power encounter between the two, between good and evil, and good wins decisively. Because when God's power is shown to be stronger than the devil's power, then people take notice. And so that last bit of verse 12 said of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and the evil spirits left them. So people would have been pretty impressed at this deliverance ministry from Paul. But as we know, Satan can masquerade as an angel of light. He can deceive people. He's really got a really good marketing department. And so other people are trying to say, oh, we can do the same as Paul. We've got, we're clever enough. We've got skills. We've got a good marketing arm. We can come to us. Well... What happens in Acts 19, verse 13? There were some people who went around, some Jews, driving out evil spirits. And they tried to do what Paul was doing, invoke the Lord Jesus' name over those who are demon-possessed. And they'd say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And here's, this is a power thing, seven, seven guys, you know, plenty of beef, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish Chief priests, they were doing this. But one day, the evil spirit answered them, Well, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, seven of them, gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and, ex and bleeding, and then their fake news was exposed. Only Paul had the God with the power to deal with a scaringly powerful demonic. So in verse 17 there, and when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of Jesus was held in high honour. You see, the Holy Spirit used this power encounter to convince the sorcery-minded, occultic-practicing, spell-performing public of Ephesus that the good news about Jesus was true. And many of them accepted it, they repented, they believed. How many of them? How big was it there? Well, think about the extent to which the uh, Ephesians were 
were into occultic black magic and see how it was revealed by the response of those who converted. Verse 19, we're still in Acts 19, 19. A number who had published sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. So, how much is that? Here's a nice, got a bit of a picture of the burning there. The value, several million dollars. That's a lot of turning around. And it's a very public demonstration. And what was the result of that? Well, Acts chapter 19, verse 20. The result of it, of the power encounter being won by Jesus, is in this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And so with our leadership eyes on, we can evaluate the effectiveness of the ministry efforts in Ephesus. It's really successful. The whole province of Asia has heard the word of the Lord. It spread widely, it spread in power, and that's a big challenge to their culture. And the, we're going to see the culture pushes back. More details about Ephesus. In Ephesus was what was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis of Ephesus. And that was completed about 550 BC. And if you know how it is, big buildings don't happen by accident, do they? There was a powerful organisation to build this beautiful temple and the cult of Artemis is woven deep, therefore, into Ephesus. And that's a, a artistic representation of what that was like. Pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, the next one is what it's like today. Not much left, is there? Uh, well, God's still here. Jesus is still here. Uh, what was the myth of Artemis? Was that Artemis was the mother of all life. And it wasn't through woman, but it was through man that sin entered the world. And Artemis, because she helped her mother Leto deliver her twin brother Apollo, became known as the goddess of childbearing. And so there was social pressure on women to remain loyal to the goddess, or they might risk dying through childbearing. Artemis, or Diana, depending on whether you prefer the Greek or the Roman name, was therefore the goddess of virginity and the goddess of fertility. And let's have a picture of the, the things that they were selling. Uh, artists were producing, artisans producing and selling expensive statues depicting their many-breasted goddess. The, the priests of the temple, they were all women, and they ruled the show in the temple. They kept the men in their place. The temple was staffed with many young virgin women and there was temple prostitution, part of the fertility aspect of Artemis. There was a legend that the, the statue of the goddess was a gift from the gods that fell from the sky, most likely based on a meteor that fell at some point in the city's past. How big was it? This temple was almost double the size of the Parthenon in Athens and Pliny the Elder, who was a Roman official historian, he called this temple the most wonderful monument of Grecian magnificence. No, it was built by the Greeks. So many people were making a living out of a place like that. And the craftsmen were very aware of Paul's challenge to their income stream. 
And so they did what any reasonable group of artisans would do. They had a very noisy protest. They knew that Paul, in Acts 19, Paul says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's a danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, and then, but then they go on and they try and drag theology in, but we've got the point. They're concerned about the loss of trade. They're concerned about the loss of money. And if you thought that the protests that we've seen in the USA and around the world in recent times have turned violent, if you think they're new in world history, just read Acts 19. And we see the story there, there's confusion, there's religious chanting of mantras and slogans. You, two hours, two hours of, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They ignore judicial process. Does this sound like a city friendly to the gospel to you? Would you like God to send you to minister in a city like this? Well, that's where Paul sent Timothy. A few other historical things about Ephesus. It was built in the 10th century BC on the site of the former Arzawan capital and it was built by Attic and Ionian Greek colonists. So that's two tribes of the Greeks. And during the classical Greek era, there was one of 12 cities that were members of something called the Ionian League. The Romans came along, they captured it, became part of the Roman Republic, 129 BC. How big was it? Well, it was big in those days. It was large, it was multi-ethnic, so many different nations. It was uh, in the Greco-Roman world of the first century. Its population was exceeded only by Rome and Alexandria. So it was a big place, one of the big cities. Uh, approximately a quarter of a million people and an important seaport, which nowadays everything's sorted up so it's no longer on the sea, it's about 15 k's inland. And what do they have there? They, lots of Jews, lots of Greeks, lots of Romans, people from all over the Mediterranean world. What about the culture? Here's a big word for you, it was pluralistic. So plural, many, lots of different religions. Their moral beliefs, very varied, very diverse. There was, in our opinion, a considerable amount of moral depravity. Probably more than we would uh, think is good. But they had something very similar today. Because there were so many different religions and beliefs, once their highest values are tolerance and syncretism, it's all, which means it's okay to put things together. And so... When someone comes along and says, this is the right religion, this is the only God, this is the ultimate truth, well, they're bound to face rejection and social pressure and persecution. And you say, sounds very much like today. What did they do for school? Actually, Greeks didn't really bother about educating girls. At the Roman time, both boys and girls could go to primary school and they called it the gymnasium bit wider than what we think these days because at the gymnasium you could study history and music and logic and astronomy and Greek language, poetry, units of measurement, philosophy, maths, mythology. So reading and writing, quite a lot of people, not everyone, but quite a lot of people had reading and writing in those times. And another big belief was reincarnation. So uh, that's why they 
you get buried, put some of your good stuff in the tomb with you because you're liable to come back and use it again. So all these things are effects on the church at Ephesus. And there's serious temptations in there towards individualism, towards feminism. There's heretical ideas they got from their myths and legends. There's some of the occultic practices that they would have used before that were sneaking back in. And uh, the big things, tolerance and acceptance. Accept everything. So that's in the, in the background. So there's another mention of Ephesus in Paul's third missionary journey, which is going to influence us how we look at 1 Timothy. And it is as Paul is sailing past, he's on his way to Jerusalem, hopefully to get there by Pentecost. So we've got a map of where he's going there. That's the big map, and if we next one I think zooms in a bit closer, and you can see there, there's the yellow arrow is pointing to Miletus, and above it is Ephesus. And it's about... Oh, we'll get to that bit. So, that's our situation. And Paul's not the sort of guy who pops in for a five-minute visit, is he? I get the idea that if he knew he was actually going to stop in at Ephesus, then the people would want him to stay. And he wouldn't be able to drag himself away because they loved one another. And then there's this whole hospitality thing. And then he just loves teaching and preaching. So, because he wants to get Jerusalem, he passes by Ephesus, but... Yeah, he's still got a sense in his spirit, I'm never going to see them again. So I've got to say goodbye. So Acts 20, verse 25. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. So think about this transport had to be slower in those days because he's landed 80 kilometres away from Ephesus and he still has time before the boat sails to send the messenger off those 80 k's Ask the elders, they have to then come and see him at my leaders. They've got time to do that before the ship sails again. And so when they get there, this is the leaders. The instructions he gives to them are obviously similar to what, he's going to, what we're going to see in Timothy, in 1 Timothy. And first he reminds them of the importance of live the message. And points out, how he lived amongst them is something for them to imitate. Acts 20, 20, verse 17. You know how I lived. You know how I lived. The whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. And then he warns them about what's coming. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. There have been a few countries in the modern era where missionaries have been forced out and the fledgling believers have been left behind to fend for themselves. I wonder how you would feel if you'd gone in and you'd have some believers and then you have to get out. What are you going to feel knowing that wolves are going to have free reign to distort what you've talked about both from within the fellowship and without and the mis this happened in china missionaries were forced out of mainland mainland china and they must have felt what paul's feeling here desperately sad 
But we know that the house church in movement in China has kept on growing. And I'm encouraged by the faith that Paul had, knowing this was going to happen, the faith that God would still grow the church. And the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So trouble's coming, he says, so be prepared and do your job. Acts 20, verse 28. Keep watch over yourself and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought, bought with his own blood. See, the word of God, keep teaching it regularly. Keep teaching it accurately. Keep teaching it passionately in order to keep away the savage wolves. Acts 20, 31. And be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning you day and night with tears. That's the instructions to the elders. And it'll be so much in, in keeping with what we find these rights, particularly to Timothy. And when Paul finished talking with the elders, they all knelt together in prayer, they wept, they embraced, they kissed, and they mourned as they accompanied him to the ship. Because Acts 20.38, what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Wasn't Paul an amazing person to be able to touch lives like he did? And next week we're going to look carefully at the instructions the much-loved Paul gave to his like-minded son in the Lord, to Timothy, regarding pastoring the Ephesian church. Let's pray. Father, we've got the background here of Timothy and the letter to the church at Ephesus. And we're just amazed by what a powerful work you did in that area in that time. And we praise you for it. We ask that indeed you will uh, help us to understand, help us to learn from the message, to live the life, to live the message, so that people may, in imitating us, be imitating you. Pray it in Jesus.